opportunity today to continue our practice, and in particular in regard to the four truths. We can, um, these are, this is a teaching that is not only for a retreat situation, but is uh, transportable into every aspect of our lives. It's a template within which we can contemplate our experience of life, and within that experience, hone our contemplation towards this more subtle realization or insight into non-suffering, learning to abide and find refuge, and to overcome some of the unconscious habits that we have that are connected with unnecessary suffering, both personally and collectively, caused by our unconscious tendencies of mind, or even conscious that we uh, inflame and, and energize, but that which can lead us into conflict and stress and difficulty. So it's a patient teaching, this uh, patient work, to be willing to work with the experience of suffering rather than uh, deny it or avoid it or repress it or blame ourselves for it. There is a difference between consciously working with suffering and unconsciously suffering. If we, have a, if we, if we don't have a lot of strength of mindfulness, presence, samatha, samatha which means calming, steadying, then we tend to just experience um, an overwhelm. We can experience just an overwhelm. And then it might be more useful to come back to our practice of steadying and calming, to gather the strength of mindfulness within which, with which we can then contemplate dukkha if it's arising. Sometimes we don't always have the choice. We just get overwhelmed. <laughs> It arises and it's, a, and it's very, very consuming. And then we, but we can still even so practice. And one of the most effective ways is to accept that we're with, we're with whatever experience of suffering that we're with. And that it's a point of contemplation and a point of uh, awakening, an opportunity, rather than something going wrong or something wrong with us. It's something we basically can't avoid. And it's not to say we shouldn't also work within our lives, both a personal and collective life, to lessen the causes of suffering for ourselves and others. It's not a fatalistic teaching. It just says, oh, just accept everything and, you know, let anything happen. That wasn't the Buddha's way. He was actually quite challenging of things that were unjust. And he, uh, he tried to proactively engage and alleviate situations where there was unnecessary conflict or potential wars. But what we're doing in this uh, retreat form is going to the heart of the experience. Often we can be engaged in 
the suffering around us and responding to that, but we're actually working here primarily with our own consciousness, taking it back to the mind. Which isn't unrelated to the impact within the world. If more human beings took responsibility for their suffering rather than acting it out unconsciously, then the world would be an easier place. So there's sometimes this false distinction of the inner work and the outer response is not really a real division. It's both related, connected. But today we have the opportunity, rather than worry so much about what's happening in the world and the big issues, we have the opportunity to look at what's happening in this world, our world, That which, as uh, Ajahn Chah said to um, Kilisar's father when he visited him in uh, in uh, northeast Thailand, the time of 1970s of the Vietnam War, and his father was really upset about communists. And Ajahn Chah said, "Well, you should worry about the communists of your own mind, <laughs> the terrorists in your own mind, that which robs your own well-being." You worry about the, the prejudices and hatreds that we have within our own minds. So we have this opportunity, if, if we experience, we cultivate and beginning again and again with this steadying here, so we're really in touch with our experience. And if dukkha arises, we have the opportunity to open to it, as is the practice encouraged by the Buddha in response to the experience of dukkha. When it touches this mind, this heart, this body. As the Buddha encouraged, when when dukkha arises, it needs to be contemplated, it needs to be turned to, it needs to be understood, or to stand with it, to be with it, to receive it within our awareness. This is then part of our practice. It's not upsetting our practice or somehow something going wrong with our practice. This is a fruit of our practice that actually we're becoming more realistic and more able to meet the realities of stress and difficulty and suffering. Both subtle experiences of angst and anguish or more stronger experiences But to meet that in a, with mindfulness rather than with reactivity, of trying to resist or trying to repress or trying to justify or getting caught up in the story or projecting it out as someone else's fault, which it might be, but still, <laughs> it doesn't necessarily alleviate the issue within our own heart, here and now, or our own reactions. So when it arises, that same quality of attention and mindfulness and steadiness that we've been applying to a more neutral experience, say the breath, we can turn that to the experience of dukkha and to, at that point, to be very patient, 
as we meet dukkha, if it's present for us. In order to investigate what is happening here, where is it arising, how is it in the body, what is the feeling tone, taking our attention there, what is generating and increasing the experience of dukkha. Sometimes we just really need to to feel dukkha. It's very different feeling it and being with it consciously than, than, than feeling it and then being overwhelmed and reacting. Underneath, if there's a lot of obsessive thinking that we're just going around and around in a story and it won't let go, Sometimes it's uh, what needs to happen is that underneath the storyline is pain of some sort or other, pain in the heart. And we can just acknowledge that with mindfulness. This is painful. And feel that often it will resolve, begin to resolve and allow that energy that has been held in the unconscious or pushed away. We don't want to feel pain. It's natural that we're going to try and push that away. But sometimes the very willingness to feel pain within that's underneath a difficult story and just to take, don't to personalize it so much or objectify so much, but just to take the mindfulness there, the breath there, the steadiness of attention and investigate it's just like this, unpleasant feeling. Breathing with it, holding it within this womb of awareness, this yoni somani sakara, that which is wisely contemplating. And this is important for us to be able to do because in a certain way our capacity to resonate and feel with suffering, particularly when it hits us personally, is also connected with the the root of our capacity to develop and feel compassion. The compassion that isn't just an intellectual idealism, but is a real empathetic resonance, because we know what pain is. We've experienced it too, and it's very humbling (laughs) sometimes. to be brought from our idealistic standpoint in life, wanting to be more perfect than than what's actually happening, to have to acknowledge that we might experience and feel the pain that has come to us through conflict in relationship, through the experience of being betrayed, or the experience of the loss of loved ones, or the experience of confusion and doubt or the experience of previous wounds. There's a very beautiful, I always contemplate on this practice of, of with much patience and with much kindness and with much steadiness and capacity of the power of awareness to transform pain. It's almost like a chemical or alchemical transformation. Awareness touches pain and it's mixed with this attention and mindfulness and kindness. It has an alchemical 
quality to it. It can shift and change and release. An example of this that I like very much, if you've ever had the chance to see the documentary, The The Weeping Camel, if you haven't, I recommend it's a French documentary that focuses on um, a nomadic family in Outer Mongolia. This family is very connected with their animals, and in this case is the animals that are, are very integral to their to their life are are camels. And there's uh, one of the camels, a mother camel is uh, due to give birth and it turns out it's a very, very difficult birth and it involves a lot of pain. And as a result of this pain, the mother rejects the calf and it becomes a huge issue for the family because they need to move and they can't move if the calf is too weak and of course they want the calf to survive and they have this issue about how to try and get the calf to the mother and how to try and help the mother accept the calf and feed so the calf can feed but it's not happening because the mother's quite traumatized and every time she sees the calf it just reminds her of pain and so she rejects it it's this beautiful calf and so they don't quite know what to do so the two young sons go off and get the local village elder who's the school teacher but he's also something of a shaman and he, he, he knows what to do this is the guy that knows what to do in such situations and they get him and they bring him back and he comes back to where the family is and where the calf is and where the mother is and he brings his stringed instrument And he gets the whole family to sit very near to the camel. And as they're sitting there together, they sort of enter a state of samadhi together. They're very, very present. And they're just with the camel. And off to the side is the calf. And then the, the human mother goes up and she just gently places her hand over where the heart of the camel is. As the, the school teacher the elder starts to play his instrument and she just starts to sing this very haunting song as she's just rubbing the chest, the heart of the camel. And they're all, and there's this sort of symbiotic kind of awareness and empathy, this field of awareness and empathy is cultivated where this camel starts to be held within this, this, uh, this love or this compassion or this awareness they're not really trying to do a lot, they're just holding and present to the whole situation. And at a certain point, the camel, you can see the camel sort of almost like breathing out, and then these tears start to fall from its eyes. And it's released, the trauma's released. And then the, can, the camel then just sort of moves towards the calf, and the calf starts to suckle. And that's it. No big deal. They pack up their bags and they move on. So, you know, the healing has happened through this very simple, collective touching with awareness and presence. And I find this is a a very lovely metaphor for what we're doing for our own abandoned calves, (laughs) our own orphans that have been cast out 
and that come to visit us. So in a retreat situation like this, you know, we will have these visitors, these guests, as we were saying the other day, that will come because they need attention. You know, and, they, and, and then they come and we think, oh no, you're here, go away, <laughs> and uh, slam the door. This isn't what my meditation should be about, because I have some ideal about what it should be about, but the ideal isn't the reality of what is. So as we move into relationship with what is, and if there's dukkha, then as the Buddha said, just to simply say without, oh, I'm suffering, I'm a failure, or I'm suffering because the world is so awful, or look what happened to me, all of which may be true, but it's besides the point in terms of evolving out of our fixation on suffering. But rather than just as the Buddha recommended, just to know there is dukkha. It's very dispassionate, there is dukkha. It's arisen. And can I therefore meet it? Bringing that same awareness that we bring to the breath, that same vitaka, vichara, with all the skills that we've been developing to know this is dukkha. Just without making a big story, without going through a big thing, just to, in the same way as that beautiful rece- receiving of the, and touching of the camel, just to gently hold within awareness with this kindness, touching dukkha, without having to think, I've got to work this out, got to get rid of it, got to come to a solution and an answer. Because awareness itself has a deeper wisdom. It has wisdom within it. A wisdom sometimes that we can't always cognitively yet know. But we're giving, we're trusting that it can work and transform and heal that which is a, as yet is unhealed. So not to fear, as Ajahn Chah would say, don't, don't, you know, don't fear suffering. It, uh, it is hard to be with, but there's a very, he would say, that this practice is about being with suffering to end suffering, not to endlessly, endlessly be caught in states of suffering. We don't need to be, continue to keep being driven by and shaped by. So if we have some of these kinds of visitors today that are taking the opportunity because there's a bit of space and some presence here and some samadhi and it's a safe space, and then to give the time and the patience for our orphans. Touching gently with awareness, with kindness. Wisely reflecting, and then as the as we've been cultivating, looking a little deeper, where is the suffering actually? Is it really in the condition, in the situation, or or what are we? Yes, there is that. There is pain, perhaps, but what are we adding to it through our resistance and through our aversion and through our desires for it to be another way? Because it's that in this second noble truth 
that the Buddha said it's that peace that we can actually bring to an end. We can work and accept this is in certain amount of inherent in, in our lives. There is going to be a certain amount of pain, a certain amount of suffering. This is inevitable. We can learn to withstand that, to bear that, to work with it, to, to allow it to deepen us into compassion for ourselves, for each other. But there's also a certain suffering that is unnecessary. It's just happening because we're not very attentive. You know, we're a bit lazy and we're not very attentive and really inquiring and so we just put up with these sort of low-grade experience of struggle, suffering and resistance. And just a little bit more effort and energy, a little bit more just being present and really inquiring, sometimes we can see, start to see these deeper forces of the mind constantly moving away from what's here and resisting what's here and wanting it to be another way. And it's that that we can actually start to to let be. So really today explore, because the mind's always moving to something else. (laughs) We're already moving to the end of the retreat or what's going to happen. We just capture this day for a space where we can really see how present we can be with as it is and helping to relinquish, exploring, can we really relinquish in moments this fever of desire that's always pushing us on to the next thing, already planning our next retreat. You're already in a retreat. (laughs) This is it. When you go to the next one, it's going to be just like this. (laughs) Same stuff. Slightly different combination of people on the front up here, but you know, wherever we are, here we are. So, really getting to grips with this endless seeking and agitation and fever of the mind. And when it, when it comes up, as the, the Buddha encourages a practice to learn to, to relinquish putting it down, not now, and then replacing that compulsion with a moment of coming back to the breath, breathing in a bit more deeply, establishing mindfulness again. And again, this is a point of patience, patience Sajjan Chai used to say a lot of practice is really about patience, patiently being with that which is not easy to be with, and just, but working it. And moments when we really are able to be here and to recognize in this territory of the third truth that yes, there is that also which is not suffering, which is peaceful which is not in a state of struggle. And we often don't notice that because we're so addicted to our struggles and our stories. There's a lovely conversation between the Buddha and a student that comes to visit him called Jatukani. 
This is from a text which is one of the earliest texts called the Sutta Nipata. And towards the um, one of the chapters of this is this uh, particular text within the Buddhist canon is called The Way to the Beyond, where the Buddha has uh, discussions with 16 students that come, young people that are interested, come to inquire of him with their questions. So Jatakani comes to the Buddha and says, I have heard, he said, Jatakani said, that there is an ocean crosser, a hero desiring the desireless. And so I have come to ask a question of this man without desire. Tell me this, I of instant seeing, knowing. What is the state of peace? Please explain this to me as it really is. You, Master, rule desire and pleasure like the sun with heat and light rules and controls the earth. I have only a little understanding, sir, and you are a globe of wisdom. Tell me how to find and know the way of giving up this world of births and agings. Giving up this world of suffering, in other words. We're constantly, the mind constantly being born, grasping, constantly experiencing death, the loss of things, constantly caught in reactivity to uncertainty and trying to find certainty. How can we come to an end of that? How can we know stability? How to know peace? It's a very timeless question and he poses it to the Buddha in a very beautiful and poetic way. And the Buddha replies to Jatukani, Jatukani, Lose the greed for pleasure. See how letting go of this world is peaceful. There is nothing that you need to hold on to, and there is nothing that you need to push away. Dry up the remains of your past and have nothing for your future. If you do not even cling to the present, then you can go from place to place in peace. This is uh, not easy. <laughs> but we can, you know, it's uh, something we can explore in just very small ways. It's not to say that we don't need to plan and think about the future. It's not to deny that there's a past, but there's this the fixation. It's the unnecessary agitation and fixation and identification with the sense of past and future, which the mind is constantly preoccupied with that undermines our capacity for recognizing the peace here and now. It's inherent, inherent within the heart. The heart is already peaceful, but it's not recognized. <coughs> so in moments, if there's you know, non-struggling, and rather than getting bored and think, well, I've got to go and do an archaeological dig and get all my stuff up and work with it, it's like this landscape we're in, this snow and this winter trees. It's not very inviting, but it's actually very peaceful. 
And so in some of these landscapes of the mind and the heart where there's perhaps not a lot going on, there's not you know, stu- huge stuff that we're agitating over, is to allow ourselves to receive peace, to hear silence, to notice space, to let the mind rest, to not have to keep doing things, creating things. It's not within, it's within our ability to do that. That's why the Buddha taught this teaching, because he knew we could do it. As Ajahn Chah says, you can do this. Moments of recognizing what the Buddha called the Amata Dharma, the immovable, the unshakable, the peaceful, the present, the aware, the luminous, the knowing, heart, here and now. So today, contemplating these truths, supported by the factors of the path that we're developing, the fourth truth, some effort, some mindfulness, some samadhi, some investigation, little by little, moment by moment, integrating this teaching, using this teaching in a way that supports our awakening. Patience, kindness, but with determination to use this space, to use this time well. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.